Good morning, everybody. It's great to see everybody and uh, either there giving virtual hugs. Um, strange times. This morning, there's, there's a theme that we'd like to run through. Um, the songs have been chosen with this theme and you might recall about three weeks ago, the first Sunday in the new year, I spoke about the ministry of Jesus and how he lived and and I, what I believed is his attitude of grace first, how he loved people. It was grace that established relationships. And um, I talked about Zacchaeus, how he dealt with Zacchaeus and the woman at the well. And this morning, later, I'd just like to continue with that just a little more, looking at um, how Jesus did things and how much we have to learn from his ministry. And when I was thinking of this, I came across this verse or three verses in, in a book, and it, but it's from the translation of the message. And I'd just like to begin by reading this. It's Matthew 11, 28 to 30. And it's a very well-known passage, but I don't often read the message. So this has kind of brought a new perspective. And uh, a lot of what we've been thinking of as a church lately, I think is wrapped up in the way Eugene Peterson has put this. Are you tired? worn out, burned out on religion, come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. <clears throat> so I'd just like to share a few thoughts this morning on a series of three parables that Jesus taught from. And he didn't use parables lightly. It gives us room to use our imagination. He spoke amazing truth and sometimes it was wrapped up in the wording. So the three I want to do, it was a crowd of people had gathered around Jesus. And they included tax collectors, sinners, even Pharisees and teachers of the law were there. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law weren't happy with the others in the crowd. They were upset with Jesus and they were muttering to themselves, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. You can find this, these parables in Luke 15. Jesus, Jesus heard there complainings and the grumblings and the mutterings and in response to that he tells these parables and the first one is about a man a shepherd and he'd lost a sheep and he tells how he went and he, he looked after and he sought that sheep until he found it but he'd left the other 99 behind I believe they were safe and protected but he went looking for the one, even though he had 99, he wanted the one that was lost. And then he told the next parable, which was about a woman who had 10 silver coins and she lost one. And he told how she searched for it. She looked through a house, she cleaned it, she swept it and she didn't rest until she'd found her lost coin. And I read the other day that 
a woman on her marriage in those days would sew 10 silver coins into her headdress. So this lost coin wasn't just any old coin, it was a silver one that would be so special and costly to her for her wedding day. Jesus in these two parables was showing the heart of the person who had last lost something of value to them and the efforts they went to to find them a shepherd and his sheep, a woman and the coin. But then Jesus really raises the bar and he tells the story of a father who's lost his son. And this is the parable I'd like to just share some thoughts on. I mean, this has become known as the parable of the prodigal son. But the word prodigal doesn't appear in it. Don't even appear in the story. It appears as if an editor or somebody putting the Bible together, translators, we don't know who, put this word prodigal there for son. And it stuck. So we focus on the son. But the word prodigal actually means reckless extravagance or having spent everything. So we've come to think of this story mainly meaning the son and his, his reckless extravagance, his having ruined and spent everything he had. But many believe actually the focus of this, what Jesus intended, was the father. His focus on the father. So Jesus tells about the man about who had two sons. And one day the younger son comes and asks for his inheritance now. And what he was effectively telling his father was that he didn't want to wait until his father had died. He wanted his money now. He didn't want to live under his father's rules and restrictions. He wanted to live life now. He wanted his freedom now. He wanted to be free of the responsibilities of some of the guidance of the father. He wanted to go and enjoy himself, to live life and not be restricted here with his father on the farm. I think that as Jesus continued with this parable, the crowds would have been shocked at such a request by the son, but even more so that the father did what the son asked. So the son leaves. Can you imagine it? His pockets full of cash. Remember when you might have left home for the first time? Open road before him, freedom, life, enjoyment, not having your parents looking over your shoulder all the time, telling you what's right, what's wrong. These are all the things he'd ever wanted. He's free to do what he wants now. He doesn't have to refer to anybody. He's choosing. He's deciding what's good or bad for his life. Well, this is fullness of life, and here I come. But it didn't work out that way. With a lot of money in his pocket, he gathered a lot of friends very quickly. But as you know, he squandered the money, getting drunk on prostitutes, on wild living. The Bible doesn't hedge these points. He really did some pretty bad things. And when his money began to run out, so did his friends. And when it had all gone, he was alone. And he ended up working in a pigsty. 
this life of freedom, free from constraints, free from control, away from his father's corrections, having chosen the rules by which he would live his own life. Here he is, feeding the pigs. Not a life of freedom, but a life of bondage. He's hungry, he's dirty, he's penniless, and he's alone. Jesus telling this story to his listeners and saying that the boy ended in a, in a pigsty was about the worst thing anybody could ever say to a Jew, how, a, how their life would fall apart. How could anyone ever recover from such a life? What father would ever take him back? When the boy, so the parable tells us, came to his senses, he decides to go back to his father, but not as a son, as a hired hand or a servant. That is, of course, if the father will take him back. And he prepares a speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. I don't actually believe Jesus was meaning that this was just a prepared speech, not really serious. I think the boy actually meant it, and I think that's what Jesus was trying to impress on the crowd. Just look at the order in which the boy began. Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. Although he puts heaven first, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. When King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed, he arranged for him to be killed in a battle. When he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, he said this, I have sinned against the Lord. David knew the sin was against the Lord. Firstly, in this parable, Jesus is saying, we must acknowledge our sin against God first. This does not negate our sins against one another. But prim primarily, we've broken God's law. Let's be honest. We've all been in the place where the lost son was. We've all sinned. We've all failed. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We've all wanted to live our own lives free from constraints of God. There was a time in every one of our lives before we knew God. And this is what the essence of the story is about. But I also believe there's a much wider and a fuller picture here, something even more to which Jesus is alluding in the story. He's giving us a glimpse, a look into the future. We can see it now because we're looking back. But of course, the crowd he was speaking to was there with him, so they won't be able to look back like we could. But I think there's lessons we can learn today. So the son starts his journey home. As I said, many believe this is about him, but more, a lot of people, about the father. And we're going to see what the, the response of the father is now as the son comes home. So let's look at how we dealt with it. Will he receive the boy? Will he allow him to work for him? 
will he want anything to do with him at all? Jesus continued, the father was watching the road. He's waiting. We have to remember the first two parables that Jesus told people went searching. They went seeking for what was lost, but the father didn't do this. He didn't go looking for the son. He had to wait for his son to freely return to him. Because in doing so, the father knew that there had been a heart change. His son's heart had changed. Jesus describes the father as looking down the lane or the road. I think there's an implication that there was an intent in looking. It wasn't just a glance. There was an intent. He was waiting. He's waiting for his son to come back. And it doesn't need much imagination to picture the boy when he did come back. That the figure walking up the road was nothing like the figure that walked away some time before. Pockets full of money. Now head bent maybe, shoulders down, no spring in the step, no expectation. Maybe a bit of fear how he would be received. Clothes dirty, smelling, maybe ripped, torn. What a picture. The father hurting to see his son in such a condition and yet rejoicing that he's back. The father, a man of standing, of position and respect in the community, did a humiliating thing in, in terms of Jewish society at the time. He's a distinguished man wearing a long robe. He would have pulled it up, showing his ankles, his legs, and he ran towards his child. That was a humiliating thing in the eyes of community. And the first thing the father does, even though his son is dirty and smelly, is to throw his arms around him and kiss him on the cheek. Whilst the father's doing this, the boy's trying to talk. And he's saying, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But he didn't even get the chance to say, make me like one of the hired men. Because the father was speaking above him to the servants. You see, everything the father needed to know, he already knew. He knew that the boy's heart had been changed and that he had come back to his father. So the father shouts, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and let's celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Let's just think of these words. Bring the best robe and put it on him. The boy's dirty, smelly, 
as I said, maybe it's closed now in tatters. But the father's calling for the best robe. Not any old robe. Not one too big, too small. Not a robe belonging to someone else. But the best robe for his son. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says this. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Not any old robe, but a robe of his righteousness. Made to fit me, made to fit you as individuals. This is so personal. These robes. And even think of it, almost robes made to measure for me, for you, put on each one of us by God himself. And then the father continued, put a ring on his finger. A sign that he carries his father's authority. When he speaks, it's as if his father's speaking. When he orders something, it's as if his father is ordering ringing. The authorities to speak and represent the father. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 20 says this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. What a position we carry, ambassadors of Christ. And then the father tells them to put sandals on his feet. In those days, apparently servants, slaves, went barefoot. But this wasn't a slave or a servant. This is the father's son. And he has to be recognized as such. And the last command of the father Bring the fattened calf. Let's celebrate. Let's have a party. The other parables just before this one, that the lost sheep and the lost coin, they both ended in celebrations. The one about the shepherd was, you know, about um, how much rejoicing there is in heaven over one sinner who repents. And over 99 who are already saved. There's a party. And the woman who found the coin, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The father had to have a party. Everything Jesus has the father doing and saying in this parable, I don't think would leave any doubt in the hearers' minds that the boy has been reestablished as the father's son. This is amazing, extravagant, outrageous grace. Do you remember I said it was about extravagance of giving, almost recklessly giving? As we look back, we can see a father who recklessly gave the very best he had in Jesus that we could be saved. This is outrageous grace, amazing, outrageous grace. This parable Jesus told speaks of extremes. 
the sun falling so far, even to the depths of the pigsty. Yet the father lavishing so much love and grace upon him, lifts him back into sonship. Paul picks up a theme, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And this is what the father said, my son was dead. But Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace we have been saved. And 1 John 3 reminds us, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. A question I ask myself, and I would ask you, how can we live? How can we live now without showing such grace and love to the lost? To our neighbours? How can we not want to pray such blessings over their lives that they would have an encounter with Jesus that would change their hearts and bring the restoration back to the Father? There's an acrostic for the worst word grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches for you and me at Christ's expense. I'd like to finish. This, this parable has a sting in the tail. Because it doesn't end there. Jesus puts in another conversation with the older brother. And I think he did this for a reason, because there was Pharisees in the crowd, teachers of the law quite standoffish from everybody else. They were the elite. If everybody was like them, the world would be in a much better place. Why is he even engages, engaging with these awful people? It doesn't seem as if the older brother liked the son. It's as if he believed the father had let the boy off too lightly. There was resentment in the older brother. No party for him. No party for him. He should have been the one welcoming the guest to the party as the duty of the elder son. That was his responsibility, but he refused. He didn't do this. He, he embarrassed his father by not doing this. He dishonored him in public. I think the elder brother thought that the father treated his younger brother as if he'd done nothing wrong. And the word came to me, justified. Justified, never sinned. And he was upset. Surely the father should have condemned him. Surely the father should have put restrictions. He shouldn't have taken him back as his son. He's, he's squandered, he's wasted everything. And I wonder if the Pharisees might have heard that their hard spirit, their hard hearts, that these comments of Jesus were meant for them. And I have to ask myself, how much of the older brother's attitude is in me? How much? 
how much can I look on people whose lives are in a mess and say, oh, what a place to be, rather than trying to love them into a relationship with the Father. How can we so easily be put off by the dirt and the smell and the tatters of lives and not be moved? And so I ask, and I'm serious when I say that, I ask myself that question, how much of the elder brother, brother's attitude is in me? But I know it's grace that saved me and saved each one of us. We've been saved by grace. But that's not the end of the story. Because it's by grace alone we even stand today. Even though we believe in God, we need his grace to stand. We need his grace in such dimensions so that we, in spite of all our failings and weaknesses, can approach his throne bravely and boldly go into his presence, knowing his grace is sufficient. We see the lost and the hurting through your eyes. May we minister them to them through your love. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who willingly gave his life for each one of us, and may the love of God the Father who gave, willingly gave his son to die for our sins so that we could become children of the living God. And may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit who empowers and equips us to proclaim the glory of the kingdom of heaven on earth now, not just with words, but with actions and with grace. Be with us all now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>